At this time, we continue our worship service uh, with the scripture reading from which the sermon is based, followed by the sermon. Listen now for God's word from Judges 21:25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, yesterday I was uh, at our picnic, um, and I met uh, two new friends from Waterloo, Canada. And um, so it's just been a delight to uh, meet so many people that are new to our city and and new to our church as well. And um, whether you find a home at our church or another church, we're grateful that you're here. And we hope that you can find a place where you can really thrive and grow. And I've been talking to other pastors in our city as well. And it's not just our church, but there are a lot of churches in our city where uh, there's just a sudden influx of so many new people. And so we're super grateful that you're here. Uh, If we haven't met yet, though, my name is Aaron. I'm I'm one of the the pastors at Exilic. But what's far, far more important than that is that you must know that I am a proud girl dad. I have two daughters, Logan and Hayden. Logan is five years old. Hayden is turning three years old this week, actually. And occasionally, occasionally, they will fight. And sometimes when they fight, they come up to me and they say, Daddy... That's not fair. Or they'll say, Daddy, that's not right. And usually I I put my peacemaker hat on and I say things like, you know, what happened? And, you know, I try to have them reconcile together. But one of these days, I'm not only going to put my peacemaker hat on, but one of these days, like maybe next year when they're six and four, I'm going to put my philosopher hat on. And they're going to fight again next year, and one of them's going to come up to me, and they're going to say, Daddy, that's not fair, or Daddy, that's not right. And as I put my philosopher hat on, I'm going to say, but how do you know that's wrong? And they're going to look at me puzzled, and they're going to say, what do you mean? It's just wrong. But how do you know that's wrong? The reason why you know that's wrong is because you know what's right. You can't know what's wrong or right unless you can differentiate between the two. So the reason why you know why something is wrong or right is because you know what's wrong and right. And they're going to say, right. And then I'm going to say, so that means you have some kind of moral compass or moral code in you. And they're going to say, yes. And then I'm going to ask them one last question. And I'm going to ask them, now, how did that moral compass get inside of you? How did that moral code get inside of you? Where where exactly is it from? Is it from evolution? And my oldest is going to say, evolution? The strong eating the weak, survival of the fittest, uh, might makes right and the oldest is going to say daddy i don't like evolution because hayden even though she's younger than me she's stronger than me and i don't like the idea of might makes right well i'm going to say well but then can our ethics evolve as the psychologist jonathan Haidt would say can can it just emerge 
and become socially constructed. And then one of them is going to say, but daddy, if our ethics evolve, right, and, and, and it's no longer the strong eating the weak, but all of a sudden the strong having compassion for the weak, caring for the poor, isn't it also possible that it could evolve back to where it once was? I think that if something is right, it's always right. Whether no one is doing it, whether everyone's doing it, whether it's happening today, a thousand years ago, or a thousand years from today, hammering Asian Americans in the head in the middle of Hell's Kitchen should always be wrong. There should never be a time where it's ever right. Our morals should not evolve, but they should be absolute. But then I'm going to say, but girls, I know you've read John Stuart Mill, and he talks about the harm principle. And I know modern people love the harm principle. And the harm principle, of course, is this. Morality and freedom is being able to do whatever you want so long as you don't harm anyone. So long as you don't hurt anyone, you can do whatever you want. But then they're going to say, but daddy, we don't all agree on harm. Critical race theory. Intersectionality. Some people think it's helpful. Some people think it's harmful. Wearing a mask. Some people think it's helpful. Other people think that it could actually be harmful. Abortion. Pro-choice people think that it's helpful. Pro-life people think that it's harmful. So whose definition of harm, daddy? Is it, is it the left? Is it the right? Is it moderates? We don't even agree on whose definition of harm, and that's right. A part of the reason why we have so much moral outrage in our society today is because we can't even agree on what is right from wrong, and I think a large part of that is because we don't know where our moral compass even comes from. And because we don't know where this foundational code comes from, we don't agree on what is right or, or wrong. And this is the exact thing that propelled the Oxford Don C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. Where did my moral compass come from? Take a look at the first quote in your bulletin. And I want to read you something that Lewis once wrote in an epiphany that he had. In his magnum opus, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So here's the most controversial thing that I will say today. I think that the reason why every one of us here has a moral compass and a moral code is not because you are a sophisticated baboon with etiquette. I think that the reason why you have a moral compass in you is because you have God's fingerprints all over your life. I think that you are special. You are made with meaning and purpose. And because you are made in the image of a moral God, 
you too have this moral compass deeply imprinted inside of you. Now, you might be thinking, well, does that mean that someone has to be religious to be moral? And I would say, absolutely not. The late Christopher Hitchens once said, tell me one thing that a theist can do that an atheist can't do. And he is absolutely right. I would never want to live in a world where non-religious people could not be moral, and only religious people could be moral. George Epstein, the humanist uh, chaplain at Harvard, once said, humanism is being good without God. And I would totally, again, be okay with that. But the question isn't whether we have the ability to be moral. The question rather is this, what is the basis or foundation or grounds for our morality? As Christians, the basis and foundation and grounds for our morality is a moral God. But I think that if you do not believe in God, the basis of your morality or, or, or your foundation for your, your morality is like having your feet firmly planted in midair without anything to stand upon. And so if God isn't the foundation of our reality or our morality, what then ensues? And I think what ensues is Judges 21-25. So take a look with me at that verse again. And it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This singular verse is repeated four times in the book of Judges, in chapter 17, 18, 19, and 21. And generally speaking, when something is repeated more than one time, it probably means that it's pretty pretty important. And what this verse is trying to capture is sort of the zeitgeist or the spirit of that age where there was no king and therefore everyone did do what was right in their own eyes. So let me give us some context behind what this verse is saying. Whether you you are a Christian here today or not, or you've read the Bible or not, I'm pretty sure all of us are familiar with the story of Moses and the Israelites. The, the people of God are in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Moses helps liberate them out of Egypt. They wander in this wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies, but he passes off the baton to Joshua, and Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land. Now, when you're in this new home and a new environment, whenever you're constructing a new society, you need to have some kind of government, some kind of leadership, some kind of rules. Otherwise, you have total anarchy and chaos. And so the kind of government that they set up is something like um, this period of judges. Now, when you hear the word judge as a modern person, you just think of Judge Judy, but I also want you to think of someone like Genghis Khan or, or uh, William Wallace in Braveheart or, or Russell Crowe in Gladiator. Judges were not just people that diplomatically you know, handled cases, that, but they were also military leaders and uh, warriors as well. And when we read the book of Judges, it's a mixed bag. Much like our politicians today, some were great, some were not so great. And as a result of that, there was a lot of moral decay that was happening in their society. And so they took a look at the nations that were around them. One of the things that they noticed was that they didn't have judges in these surrounding nations. What they had was a monarchy and a king. And they had prosperity. And because we like to copycat success, they also wanted a monarchy and a king as well. So all the people go up to the current judge named Samuel. 
And they say to Samuel, Samuel, we want a king as well. And in one of the most heartbreaking passages in the Bible, Samuel talks about how devastated he is with this request. And then God speaks to Samuel and he says this, listen to what the people are saying, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as king. So when we read, in those days there was no king in Israel, it's not just talking about the fact that there is no political king in Israel, but what it's also talking about is that the king of kings has now been impeached and dethroned from the lives of God's people. And because they rejected God as their king, what we see is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I like the way that the Russian novelist Dostoevsky um, captures this when he says that if God does not exist, everything is permissible. So let me flesh out an example of what that looks like when God does not exist. About 60 years ago, Time magazine came out with its iconic cover, God is Dead. This, of course, was a quote from my second favorite philosopher and teacher behind Jesus, Frederick Nietzsche. Now, when Frederick Nietzsche first said that God is dead, what he meant by that was this. The existence and belief in God gives us meaning. It gives us morality. It gives us hope. There's a lot of things that God gives us, but the enlightenment, rationalism, scientism has killed God. And therefore, because God is now dead, there's this huge vacuum and void in our hearts. Like, where, where are we supposed to get meaning, morality, and hope from now, now that God is dead? And Nietzsche's whole point was, if God is dead, you can't. You can't get ultimate meaning, morality, or hope. Nietzsche's whole thing was, you, you can have meaning as a soccer mom, soccer dad. You can have meaning as a social worker or a teacher. But you can't really have ultimate meaning without God in your life. And so you can't. There's a void in our heart. And this is where Nietzsche birthed his philosophy of nihilism. And nihilism is basically the philosophy that life is absolutely meaningless. This is one of the reasons why he's one of my, my second favorite philosophers, because that makes coherent sense to me. And it's out of that meaninglessness of life that his, his, his understanding of morality was birthed. And if you take a look at the next quote, this is what Nietzsche says. Nietzsche says, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, the, uh, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. And that's what Judges 25 is trying to say when it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when we do things that are only right in our own eyes, what we're saying is that we are our own authority. We are our own kings. When we kill God, someone has to take his place. And that is now us. This is why the philosopher Peter Kraft at BC once said that we now live in the most religious society in human history because we have all become gods to ourselves. And it is up to us to be the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. But I do want to present one danger in this. 
where we become the sole authority of what is right and wrong. I want you to imagine a society where everyone dresses up in police uniforms or firefighter uniforms, everyone. Everyone impersonates an officer of some sort. What do you think would happen to society if everyone dressed up as an authority figure? Our sense of authority would then be undermined and devalued, and our sense of structure would collapse because we wouldn't know what authority meant anymore because everyone pretends to be an authority figure. It would totally disrupt and cause disorder in our society. How much more so then if every one of us dresses up and impersonates God? How much more so would our society be disrupted and fall apart if everyone pretends to be God himself? So, if that is the case, why is God a potentially better foundation for us to build our sense of morality upon? Well, I like the way that Alistair McIntyre puts it in his book, After Virtue, and he says this. He says, imagine that um, there's a nail, and you want to hammer the nail down, so you get a watch. And you start hammering the nail down, and all of a sudden, the, uh, the watch breaks. Now, is that a good watch, or is that a bad watch? Well, what you would say is, well, it depends on the purpose of a watch. If the purpose of a watch is to hammer a nail, then it's a bad watch. But if the purpose of a watch is to tell time, then it's a good watch. The way you determine whether something is good or bad is by first determining its purpose. The purpose allows us to evaluate whether something is good or bad. Now apply that watch to us. How do you know whether a person is good or bad? Well, it depends on our purpose. But the question is, what is our purpose? And Nietzsche's whole point is there is no purpose. We're here by accident. We should have never been. You have no ultimate purpose. You, you won the cosmic lottery. There is no ultimate purpose to your life. So how can we determine whether someone is good or bad? But in Christianity, you were made with purpose. You were made by a perfect God in his image. So what does it mean to be a good human? What does it mean to be a bad human? To be a good human then means to reflect the image of God that we were made in. To be a bad human then means to not reflect the image of God that we were made in. That's how we determine between the two. And what is that image of God? Who is God? Who are we exactly supposed to reflect then if we are made in his image? Well, I opened up by saying that I'm a pastor and I'm a girl dad. But do you know how scripture introduces God? One of the main ways that God introduces himself is not as a pastor or a girl dad, but the, the main way that God introduces himself is as a defender of the weak, a defender of the poor, a defender of widows, a defender of orphans. This is what God is like. And this is why historically the people of God have sought to reflect this kind of God. Let's do a quick history lesson. Let's jump back into the first century world. First century world was absolutely barbaric. 
Infanticide was not abnormal. Infanticide was normal. Infanticide is when someone gives birth, and after they give birth, they leave the baby right on the street and abandon the baby. This was not an abnormal practice in the first century world. It was a normal practice in the first century world. Exploitation of women, that was not an abnormal practice in the first century world. That was a normal practice in the first century world. Treating uh, disabled, the sick, widows and orphans like second-class citizens, that was not an abnormal practice in the first century world. That was a normal practice in the first century world. And all of a sudden, this thing called Christianity arises. And all of a sudden, Christians now begin to pick up babies on the streets and adopt them as their own. And coincidentally, we actually have a doctrine called adoption. Where we are, where we were once orphaned, but now God has adopted us as his sons and daughters and he is our father. If God has adopted me, how can I not adopt that child that is abandoned on the streets? How can I not do anything? Exploitation of women, I mentioned this uh, a couple weeks ago, but it was common to do that. In the first century world, if you were not married and you did not have kids, you were a nobody. And then all of a sudden Christianity comes along and it says, you don't have to be married. You don't even have to have kids to have a sense of identity. Can you imagine how empowering that message was for women when they heard that for the first time? Additionally, women were frequently sexually exploited. And then all of a sudden, Christianity comes along and says, your body is a temple. It is not a playground for people to play on. And so men, you cannot treat women this way. Can you imagine how empowering that was for women when they heard something like this? The way that Christians historically have taken care of the sick, the poor, widows, and orphans, and defending them, valuing human rights, dignity, equality, because every person is made in the image of God. This is how Christians have historically acted because this is the way God acts towards every single one of us as well. We are blessed to have hope for New York, but there have been many hope for New Yorks that have existed for the past 2,000 years. There was a hope for Jerusalem, a hope for Galilee, a hope for Samaria. A very respected historian named Tom Holland, who wrote this very big book called Dominion, has made waves recently for uh, the Christian community because he is not only a very well-respected historian, but he is an atheist. And yet one of the things that Holland says is that much of what we value today from Me Too movement to BLM to equality, justice, and human rights are heavily shaped by Christianity, whether we realize it or not. Our society is saturated by Christian presuppositions. And in your bulletin, this is what he says. Holland says, if you live in the West, no book has had a greater effect on your life than the Bible. You don't have to have read it or even know the first thing about it for that to be true. Much of the best of the West, the best of Western culture, 
is because Christianity has infused our understanding of morality and ethics, whether we realize it or not. The Enlightenment tried to have the best of Christianity without God, and Nietzsche would say, you can't do that. That's all borrowed capital, and you lack a foundation. Your feet are firmly planted in midair. But you know what? I'm not only interested today uh, in how the Bible has influenced our society and the West, but what I'm more interested in as a pastor of a local church is not just how the Bible has influenced our society, but how has the Bible influenced you on a day-to-day basis? It's interesting to me that on the one hand, out of one end of our lips, we'll say things like equality, justice, human rights. On the other end of our mouths, we'll say things like, don't judge me. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? Stay out of my business, and we want no accountability. On the one hand, we want accountability. On the other hand, we don't want accountability. On the one hand, we want perfect institutions. On the other hand, we want to be free from those institutions as well. And I think a part of the reasons why we speak in a disharmonious way, or as the sociologist Christian Smith would say, why we are morally schizophrenic, I think a part of the reason for that, whether we realize it or not, is because inside of us, whether we realize it or not, is a deep sense of hypocrisy. You know, the word hypocrite has its roots in theater. A hypocrite was an actor who wore a mask and acted one way on stage, but then they would take their mask off and act another way in real life. They lived a double life. And if I can be honest with myself, and hopefully if you can be honest as well, every single one of us are hypocrites. Every single one of us has, lives a double life. We, we don't only fall short of God's standards, we fall short of our own standards, let alone God's. Now the question is, how does that work? I thought you just said we were made in God's image and we're, you know, we have divine fingerprints all over us and we have this moral compass in us. Then why, why do we live such double lives? Well, Francis Collins uh, is a well-respected scientist. You may not have heard of Francis Collins, but I know you've heard of Dr. Fauci. You know who Dr. Fauci's boss is? Francis Collins. Francis Collins also recently became a Christian not that long ago. Despite never having gone to church his entire life, despite having a major, major scientific background that should have maybe made him more atheist, Francis Collins, later on in his life, as a scientist, he became a Christian. And one of the reasons why Collins became a Christian was because of this moral argument. How did this, this moral compass get inside of me? Because there's no such thing as a moral and immoral atom. So how did this thing get inside of me? And as he started studying more and, and reading scripture, one of the things that he realized is that, you know, this is something that is spiritual, not, not materialistic. Nothing physical can explain this thing inside of me. And one of the analogies that he gives for why we live such hypocritical lives is this. When God makes us in his image, he, he gives us this moral compass, right? Pours in those absolute, you know, sense of morality in us. But what God pours inside of us this morality, he's pouring it in rusty containers. And as a result, this water is now a little bit murky. So yes, there are some good things that we do, 
But there are some bad things that we do as well because our hearts are corrupt. Our, car, our hearts are broken. And this is where Jesus comes into play because the reason why Jesus came was to take our rusty containers with murky water and he pours it into his container and he takes his pure water and he pours it into our container so we are made like new. Let me, let me extrapolate what this looks like. So with two games, uh, my, my oldest daughter recently started playing chess. Okay. And uh, as you all know, the, the whole point of chess is to protect your king at all costs, right? Uh, give up the pawns, give up the bishops. They all have to, the weak have to sacrifice itself for the strong. You have to save the king at all costs. Now I want you to think about what the gospel is. And the gospel is the antithesis to what chess is. Chess is a game where you have to protect the king at all costs. We will, we will sacrifice everyone for the king. But in Jesus Christ and in, in the gospel, the king doesn't sacrifice everyone's life for himself. Rather, this king willingly, voluntarily gives up his life for the pawns. It's not the strong eating the weak. The weak, it is strong. But he gladly gave up his life for us. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus today? It means to walk in the ways of Jesus. Well, we are not sacrificing other people's lives for us, but we are gladly sacrificing our lives for other people. And so instead of chess, what does, it, what does the Christian ethic look like? It looks like uno, which I also play with my daughters now. You know, in the game of uno, it's the opposite of or it's the opposite of Monopoly. Monopoly, you gotta hoard all the cards, real estate, you know, you gotta hoard everything and then you win. But in Uno, you do the exact opposite. The winner is the person that gives all their cards away. And when you give everything away, that is precisely when you win. And that is what Christianity the heart of Christianity really looks like. And as we think about the person of Jesus, that is what he did on the cross. He gave his life away for us. And if he did that, we must do that too. So let me just close with uh, just two analogies for us to think about. The first is this. If, if you're a skeptic in our community watching online uh, and you feel deeply inside of you you like justice, human rights, equality, the people, you know, you're against racism. One of the questions that I would like to ask is, where does that come from? The compass is there, but where does the compass come from? I think that apart from God, there is a deep disharmony between the way that you're living, which is great, but also with the basis upon which you live. Now, if that basis is incoherent with the way that you're living, why not change your basis? Why not change your foundation? Why not change the grounds upon which you live your life? Why not change it to God? And secondly, for those of you who are Christian uh, in our midst, you know, this passage says, they dethroned God and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And my challenge to, for those of you who are Christians, is to continually have a posture as you live your life and as you get stuck in sometimes murky and sticky situations.
to always have the posture where I don't want to do what's right in my eyes. I really want to do what's right in his eyes. And you know what integrity is? Integrity is doing the right thing even in the midst of the consequences. So I'm going to do that no matter the cost because it's the right thing to do because it's what Jesus would do. Reputation is how you present yourself to others. Character is who you are when no one is looking. And oftentimes our reputation and our character are not aligned. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that even when no one is looking, you desire to live under his eyes in a pleasing way, without a sense of disharmony, because you are made in his image. You are special. You are made with purpose, and you have the fingerprints of God all over you. I just want to encourage you and remind you of that as you live your life on a day-to-day basis. Super excited for um, the fact that we have the privilege of partnering with Hope for New York. I'm excited about our summer summer service uh, projects that we have. My hope is that this is not just a one-time event where we can just pat ourselves on the back, but it really would be a lifestyle in the way that we live our lives. Let's pray.